to Cognitive Revolution. My name is Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So my guest today is Jeff Hawkins, and Jeff is someone that I have admired for a very long time. He got his start, at least in his sort of like professional career of what he's, what he's known for, by uh, founding Palm Computing and inventing the Palm Pilot and early handheld computing devices. So he had an incredible career with that, which was actually not what he really wanted to do. What he really wanted to do was uh, no less than solve how the entire brain works. And this was something he started off doing as a graduate student before uh, getting into technology and and founding those, those companies. And then once you know, sort of he had established himself and, and created his, his, his niche through mobile computing like that. Then he went back to neuroscience full time and founded the Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience, which is now at Berkeley, and then a company called Numenta, uh, which uh, is, is dedicated towards these, these efforts to reverse engineer the, the neocortex. So uh, Jeff's the first the way that I first came became familiar with him was his book on intelligence uh, which is from the early 2000s and it was basically him laying out a sketch I guess we could say now of of what his theory of intelligence would look like particularly with the idea being that what we're looking for is one, overarching neocortical algorithm that no matter what kind of sensory data the brain is looking at um, whether it's vision or uh, auditory or linguistic whatever whatever the brain is currently considering as a source of data there is one overarching unified sort of algorithm that is going to process it and particularly within uh, what's known as cortical columns and so that's the sort of, I guess you could say, draft one of that theory was in on intelligence. And then his most recent book, which came out in March 2021, is called A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence, which is basically the progress that he's made. And he's made an awful lot over, well, him. let me say him and his team, uh, over the past you know 20 years or, or, or whatever you want to say of that. And it's a really cool book. I'm a huge fan of, of Jeff's work. I highly recommend this this book if you're interested in these big ambitious okay how do we figure out you know the brain artificial intelligence all this sort of stuff Jeff is definitely a person that you want to be listening to in that conversation I won't say too much more about the uh the ideas in the book and and that sort of stuff because um, you know, towards the end, maybe around the, the hour mark and a little bit beyond there, the conversation did get a little heated. There was, I guess, evidently a a point of divergence. And, uh, you know, I'll let you make sense of, of, of that for yourself. Um, but I certainly want to make it clear that uh, Jeff is, I mean, I'm just such a huge fan. And he was, he was very influential, especially in my early years of getting into to cognitive science. My uh, perspective my interests have since diverged and uh you know I, I do other stuff besides sort of comp more the more computational focused more neurosciencey stuff 
I do other stuff now, but at any rate, I'm a huge fan of Jeff and it was such a huge honor to talk to him. And, uh, I think, uh, anyone, like I said, anyone who's interested in these topics should go check out his new book, a thousand brains. Uh, it's got a lot of really good stuff in it. So without any further ado, here is Jeff Hawkins. So the first thing I usually like to ask people is where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, New York State on Long Island, the North Shore of Long Island, in a town called Centerport, right at the Centerport in Greenlawn. So, and then I went to the I went to college upstate New York. So, uh, and I had relatives in New England. So I was basically a New York New England type of upbringing. Nice. And uh, I know you studied electrical engineering in college. What uh, what was 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 that? What what sort of drew you to to that? Well, it's funny I, when I was uh, I, I really had very uh, poorly formed ambitions when I was young. And so <clears throat> I figured, well, the, this is right around the time of the first big energy crisis in the early 70s. And I said, I, I want to go into alternative energy. And my father said to me, he says, well, that's really good. He says, it might be a little bit early. He says, why don't you look into this, uh, you know, microcomputer stuff? I said, really? Okay. <laughs> so I had really no idea about it. <clears throat> and so I said, well, okay, I'll study electrical engineering. Um, they didn't really have undergraduate computer science uh, degrees back then. So um, it was kind of a, you know, just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. My father suggested, hey, take a look at these microelectronic stuff. And I said, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> it sounds kind of blah, doesn't it? It's not like I had this great ambition um, at that young age. That's pretty funny. Um, and uh, yeah, I obviously want to ask you about your, how you got interested in brain science specifically, but um, I, I'm curious to know, why? So you started off not having a very clear vision of what you were going to do with electrical engineering, but that didn't take super long for that to change because you got specifically interested in mobile computing far before that was a thing. So what was it? Was yeah, that, but that, like took, a, that, that took a while. You jumped ahead now about 10 years or so. Um, uh, I studied electrical engineering. I got, I had to get a job, you know, I graduated from college and, um, and my first uh, job was with Intel, and that wasn't, um, and I wasn't working on you know mobile electronics or anything like that. It was just a, a place that I could. I got a job in Oregon. And I said oh, that'd be a fun place to live outside of Portland, and um, Intel was a, a growing company at the time. I thought, well, it's a good company to work for. It wasn't until um, uh, you know maybe you know eight years later that I actually started really getting involved in mobile computing. Um, and so, you know, I worked at Intel for three years working on uh, single board computers and supporting applications for customers and factories and things like that. Um, but then very right after I started my job at Intel, like literally three months after I started, right, I was 22 years old. I graduated in June, September 1st. I read this article about brains and I just decided, oh my gosh, this is what I have to do for my life. <laughs> so, so that was, uh, that's, that's the order things happened. And I, I said, I'm going to, I was, you know, I, I just started this job, but I said, I'm going to have to dedicate my life to working on studying the neuroscience and brains. And, um, and I'd say, well, I'll have to figure out how to do that. Cause I just can't just do it. Uh, it took me a while to, to, to get around to it. Um, uh, I tried work. I tried to apply for um, uh, be a graduate student at MIT. I wasn't accepted. Then I got into a program at, at Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley, and I was accepted there. And and then when I went to Berkeley, I discovered as, a, as this was a PhD student in neuroscience, um, 
I wrote a paper what I wanted to do for my graduate thesis, and the um, and the, the, the chairman of the graduate group of uh, neuroscience basically said, "This is great. You ought to do this, but you can't." I write about this in the book, and uh, and so I was like, "What? What do you mean I can't do this?" <laughs> it's like I just changed my career. I got rid of my job. I left the computing industry. I'm here as a neuroscientist graduate student, and you're telling me what I want to work on is great, which is an overall theory of the neocortex, but I can't do it. And uh, not that I can't do it, it's no one can do it, is, is the idea. You couldn't get funded for it. So that's when I went back in the industry. And for, after, for I think for four years, I'd work in industry. And by then, I'd already started working in um, uh, laptop computers and I, uh, in, my, in my earlier, first on Intel and then at a company called Grid. Um, and that's when I really started the mobile computing interest, right around, uh, it would be like in 1989, 1988, something like that. So that first neuroscience essay you read, I believe that was by Francis Crick on the state right. of art in, in brain science. Was that something that was on your radar as in like, you know, you had an inkling about it or was it just like one of those moments where you found something like, whoa. This it was, you know, I, as a very young, as a teenager, I had once asked myself, um, what are the most important questions that one could ask about the world? And the first answer I said, well, why does the universe exist? That seems like uh, it's an odd thing, you know? Nothing that seems more likely than something that's why does it exist. The next one was, well, give me an example. Why does it behave by the laws of physics? Why do we have these laws? You know, why is E equals MC squared and not MC cubed? You know, why, why is there gravity? These are kind of fundamental questions. And then the third question was, well, given the laws of the universe, what is life and how did life come about? And the fourth question was, well, given that there's life, what is intelligence? And I realized at that point, there's no point in asking many more questions because understanding what intelligence was, understanding how our brains work was in some sense fundamental to all everything else. It's only our brains understand the universe. Only our brains know that something is here. Only our brains can um, figure out the, the origins of life. And so I said, well, that, that seems to be the most interesting question actually. So that was in my teenage years and I kind of put that aside. Um, and then it was only many years later, or five years or six years or so later, that um, I read this essay by Francis Crick, as you mentioned. And this was in the September issue of 1979 issue of Scientific American, which that magazine always dedicates to a single topic in September. And I'd read that Scientific American my whole life. Um, and so that issue was about the brain and it had all these articles about different aspects of the brain. So I was reading them, it was pretty interesting. And, and then Crick's essay was the very last thing in, in that issue. So after he read, oh, here's about the neuron, here's about this, here's about that. And then Crick gets, and Crick writes his essay and he goes, I think it was called Thinking About the Brain. And he goes, it, I'm gonna paraphrase here. He basically goes, well, we have all this stuff about the brain. We know all these facts. People write all these articles, but we, we know diddly squat about how it works. <laughs> Let's not fool ourselves. We just don't understand this. And he said, you know, and it, it probably, it, we have enough information already to piece it together. We just haven't been thinking about it correctly. There's something wrong here. He was, he was making an observation that there's something wrong with neuroscience because we have all these facts, but no one really understands how to put them together. And, and that just struck me as like, whoa, he's right, um, probably right. And I felt like that would be so cool to work on. And I felt that maybe I, I felt that that was the kind of problem I'd be good at. And um, so it's, it, when I read that article, then my prior interest and in, in that, it all gelled in one sense of, okay, this is the most important thing to work on. I'll have to do this for my life.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess one thing I'm kind of curious about is like, you know, you did get this, like you said, um, uh, what is it? His name was like Frank Verblin or something like that. Yeah, yeah, Frank um, Verblin, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's quite clear that he was correct um, in some in some capacity that it's like, you know, you can't do that as a graduate student. Um, that's like, to some extent, like pretty sound advice, but like looking back on it now, I'm just sort of curious as someone who is in graduate school and bumping up against what is feasible and what is not in terms of like, what do you, what do you make of that? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, what what he told me, by the way, so I wrote this, I wrote this, um, paper. It was was like 60 pages of what I wanted to do for my graduate thesis. And, you know, it was the best I could write as a you know, 22 year old. And um, it actually has a lot of the ideas that are still resonating in our research today. And so uh, he read it and he had some other faculty people read it. And he said, it was just, he said, it's really well done. You know, it's sound ideas, your approach is good. I want to study the brain by understanding how it makes predictions. And um, which is what we ended up doing. And then he said, the problem is, he says, you have to work for some other professor. You have to work for some, you know, professor or scientist at the university uh, in their lab and no one's doing anything like this. He says, uh, and then he says, he doesn't know about anyone doing anything like this anywhere. And then he said, the problem is that you can't get funding to do this. And and not just me, but other, any scientist. And so it wasn't just like, I can't do this as a graduate student. He was saying that nobody in the neuroscience field can do this <laughs> that he knew of. And um, and he and he probably was right, as you said, he was right about that. But it still came as a huge blow to me. Um, I just, I mean, literally, you have to understand. I spent years getting to become a graduate student. I mean, I had to study and do independent research, independent study, and take exams. And I had to quit my job um, and to do all this. And then I, you know, so here I am, four months into my, you know, as a graduate student, I'm told like, well. You can't do what you want to do. <laughs> it's like, how come somebody didn't tell me this earlier? You know, <laughs> and um, so uh, I, I, I realized at that time that I shouldn't be, um, you know, I shouldn't walk away from my dreams about it. Um, but I realized that I was trying. I had different problems. I, I wasn't just interested to had to solve a scientific problem. I, I said to myself, well, I have sort of an institutional problem I have to deal with as well. If everyone thinks this is the, you know studying how the brain works overall is a great idea, it's one of the most important problems, but then they tell me you can't do it, well, that's something's wrong there. Right? It's like wow, that doesn't seem right. And so I said to myself, well, uh, I clearly am not going to be able, to, as a young person, um, be able to fix this system myself. Uh, I'm not going to be able to buck against it and somehow push through. So I I really didn't know what to do. So after two years of basically partly self-study and taking classes at Berkeley, I decided that um, um, I would I would take a breather from it and go back in the industry for a while. And one of my purposes of going back in the industry, one of them was to um, learn how to make institutional change. And so I figured I'd have to make a little bit of a name for myself. I'd have to prove that I'm able to do things. I'd have to learn how institutions work. And I said, well, going back into business and, and creating products and creating businesses might give me the experience I need um, to go back into neuroscience and sort of deal with this larger institutional problem of, of, um, of not being able to study uh, large scale theories of the brain. Uh, so it was kind of a nebulous plan, but it definitely was a plan. 
And I said, oh, well, I said, I'll, I'm going to take four years to do that. Um, I didn't really want to go back into the computing industry, but I thought this was going to do. And, um, and then it turned out to take a lot longer than four years. I ended up starting Palm and Handspring, and it was more like 10 years that um, I got, was in the computing industry before I got back into neuroscience. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It, the, the juxtaposition of sort of like, well, I don't, I don't really want to do this, but it is part of my grand plan, so I am going to do that. And then it turned out, you know, to be what it was, which was this, you know, essentially forecasting what mobile computing was going to turn into and, and, and being early in on that. So, yeah, I guess when did that click for you that it's like, oh, well, this is huh, I'm actually going to be doing something serious here for a while. Yeah, yeah, I think. It happened pretty quickly. So what I ended up, so my career path was like, my first job was at Intel. I worked there for three years. Then I worked at a company called Grid Systems, which was a startup. And they were they made the first laptop computer. The first computer you look at and say, oh, that's a laptop. Um, Grid was struggling. And, and then I left Grid to be go back to Berkeley, to go to Berkeley. And after two years at Berkeley, I had the opportunity to return to Grid um, to build a product, which was the first tablet computer. It was called the Grid Pad, <laughs> like the iPad, but it was the Grid Pad. Um, it's very much like, it's just a much very earlier version of the iPad, but it was designed for industrial uses because it was you know, several thousand dollars. And, um, and so I was building that product uh, and about, you know, somewhere around 1989 or something like that, um, I was watching one of my customers use this, you know, pad-like size computer. And, and they were talking about how they liked it and what they liked about it and how they'd like to keep their own personal information on it. And, and it just like hit me like a brick, like, like oh my God, this is going to be huge. I mean, you know, we're going to shrink down personal computers to fit in your pocket. That's what's going to happen. And like Moore's law is going to make this happen. And everybody in the planet is going to have this computer in their pocket because it's going to be lighter. It's going to be smaller. It's going to run all day on a battery. It's going to be inexpensive. It's going to be easy to use. Computers were very hard to use at those times. And, and it was like an epiphany, like, oh my gosh. And so that was really exciting. Um, this was probably 1989. That was really exciting. And I could see this playing out, but I also realized it was going to take, you know, decades. Um, but still, it was, an, I said, okay, well, I have to at least start it, or at least get working on it. I have to try, you know. And uh, so I was working on the grid pad, and then some venture capitalists approached me. I was talking at conferences, and some venture capitalists approached me, and I was talking about this future of personal computing, where people have these computers in their pockets. And a lot of people thought that was stupid, but... Um, but geez, a couple of venture capitalists approached me and said, hey, why don't you start a company to do this? And I'm like, well, I said, if I have to start a company, I'll probably have to be there for a long time. And I don't really want to do that, you know? And um, they said, I said, and, and it's really stressful to start a company. And I know people who start companies, they get divorced. I don't, you know, I don't want any of that. And they said, well, help you out. Don't worry about it. And, um, uh, and you can hire someone to be the CEO. So you don't, you don't have to do most of that work, you know? And I said, all right. I said, I'll sign up for it. And, but I told them, I said, I really don't, I don't want to do this more than four years. That's kind of my, and they, and, they, and, I, and I actually sort of put that in the founding documents of the company. Like, I'm really excited about this work, but I don't think I want to do it for too long. And they were very distressed by that. I'm like, what do you mean? You have to commit to this. And I'm like, well, you know, we'll see. But, um, I, you know, I really, I, I wrote it down. Like, I really want to be working on brains. It was written down in the founding documents of Palm. That like, you know, let's be honest about this. I really want to work on brains, so I'll do this for a while. If 
but I did realize it was going to be huge. And I did, I, I could see it playing out um, over the coming decades that this was going to be, you know, billions of people are going to have these things. Um, so it was exciting to work on and, and no fun, you know, I really into it. It's enjoyable. And I felt it was important. Um, but somewhere along the way, um, you know, after doing it for a while, uh, quite a few years, um, I said, well, if I'm going to do my brain stuff, I have to, I have to get started on it. I, I can't get this. I can't go too long here. And so I put a plan in to leave basically to say, okay, I'm going to exit from the computing space and I'm going to go back into neuroscience somehow. Um, I didn't even know how I was going to do that yet. Um, but I told everyone, everyone knew that I was going to, you know, only work on the mobile computing stuff for some number of years. And then I had to get back into brain theory. Uh, and it was very odd because, you know, you're leaving these large businesses, you created all these employees and, um, and then you're like back to ground zero, like a, almost like a grad student again, you know? <laughs> and uh, you also tell this story about um, specifically Intel, how you had a presentation about, um, you know, uh, the future of handheld computing and all this sort of stuff. And you essentially got laughed out of the room or, or silenced out of the room, I guess. Well, so, yeah, that was uh, later. I, that wasn't when I was working at Intel. That was now I just started Palm. Okay, sure. And yeah, and I and I, I tell the story in the book, the new book, The Thousand Brains. Um, and I was uh, I was invited to give this talk at Intel, uh, and about because I was had started Palm and I've been talking about mobile computing, and so I gave this talk about um, the future of personal computing, and how it was going to be dominated by um, handheld devices or handheld sized computers. So this was in front of the, the top 300 people at Intel. So they had this a yearly meeting where they bring in the top 300 managers from around the world uh, for planning sessions. And they had a few outside speakers and I was one of those outside speakers. Um, I didn't let you finish your question. I just started telling the story, but, <laughs> but I don't know if you want me to continue the story. Um, well, no, I think it's important. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, okay. So so I brought it, I was, and I, I basically said, well, you know, Intel was king in the personal computing world at that time. You know, they, they sold almost all the microprocessors. And, and um, I said, well, in the future, we're going to have these handheld devices. They're going to be under $1,000. They're going to be small to fit in people's pockets. And uh, many more people are going to own them. They're going to own PCs or laptops. And um, they're really going to be the driving force of the personal computers in the future. <laughs> um, and and I, I was, you Crap know, and pot. I suggest... What's that? Pot theories. Right yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I suggested to Intel, and this is maybe where I went, you know, I suggested in a kind way. I wasn't very, you know, strident about it. I suggest, well, you know, if you guys wanted to participate in that, you could help it by, but you'd have to change some of your products because I said your, your microprocessors average about $400 each. It's too expensive. The whole product has to sell for under $1,000. They, they consume way too much power. So you're going to have to figure out how to work on very low power microprocessors. Um, and um, you're going to have to figure out uh, how to package them in small packages because they, you know, they can't, these big chips can't fit in these pocket-sized computers. And, um, and so then, uh, yeah, I gave this talk, it was a lunch talk, and then it was in the room with the lunch, and, and all the people were at their tables, and food wasn't going to be served until I was done. And so I asked her some questions, and one of the questions was, the, one I, the only one I remember someone says, well, what are people going to do with these mobile computers? And I said, well, that's a really hard question to answer. I said, you know, they're too small to really enter a lot of data, which a lot of, that's what people use computers for back then, right? Spreadsheets and, and Word documents and so on. I said, so it'd be mostly for accessing information. 
And um, we'll start with things like your address book and your calendar, but we have to figure out how to get other information on it. But I don't really know how we're going to do that, but we'll figure it out somehow. Because this is before anyone even knew about the internet. I mean, any public, the internet existed, but no browsers existed yet. And most people hadn't even heard of the internet. I hadn't either. And um, there was no digital photography and there was no digital music. There was None of these things exist today. There's no lithium ion batteries. So this seemed like crazy. And as you said, I was sort of silenced out because I sat down for lunch with Gordon Moore at a table with Gordon Moore and I asked him what he thought of my talk. And he basically didn't talk to me for the next 45 minutes during lunch. He just, it was clear that nobody believed the word I said. So I, the reason I tell that story, by the way, in the book is that it's at the beginning of the second section of my book. And I tell this story because I'm about to switch from the first section of the book is all about brains and how they work. And the second section of the book is about AI and the future of humanity. And I'm talking about future things, things that haven't happened yet. And so I, some of the things I talk about in the second section of the book, I feel people are going to like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you, know, what are you, you know, you're making this stuff up. And, and that, you know, even though I think they're very reasoned arguments. And I tell that story to just say, look, you know, sometimes you can, you can, you know, you have to be open-minded, you know, that, that, you know, you may not be thinking along the lines I'm thinking right now, but, you know, try to be open-minded about um, ideas I'm going to present just like, you know, and that's, that's why I told the Intel story. Uh, because you know, I wish people there were a little bit more open-minded about it. Uh, by the way, when I told, when I did that Intel talk, I felt terrible afterwards. You know, as a, a still pretty young person, and to basically be rejected by the senior management of Intel as an idiot, or or just you know, someone who doesn't know what to, I mean, it really hurt a lot. Honestly, it was a very difficult. Uh, you know, it was like oh, a very annoying situation to be in at that time. <laughs> we're talking about careers here, so I, I mentioned that because. Throughout a career, especially mine and most people's careers, there'll be times when you just feel really bad because, you know, you're not understood or people are saying bad things about you or, you know, you're running into obstacles that you just don't really think you should have to deal with. And so that was one of those times where it just felt, this was like, oh, God, it's a real gut punch um, to have, you know, be totally thought of it like, I, like I, no one believed what I said. No, I, I I agree. I think that story is of huge practical and symbolic importance, um, <laughs> and especially for your theory overall. Because I mean, so I mean, yeah, obviously you've studied lots of brain science, but you're not part of the brain science club. You're not a P, you're not a PhD in the way that neuroscientists like to see. And so you know, I saw you give a talk a couple of years back at MIT, um, yeah. you know, to a room full of that, and I kind of imagine. Uh, you know, I hope it went better than the, the original Intel thing. That, but oh, it's oh of, no, it is. By the way, it's I, I, I'm very well respected in uh, many neuroscience circles here. Uh, I, so, I don't mean to uh, imply otherwise. Yeah, we're we're well past that. I used to worry about that. Right. Um, uh, no, you know, we publish in journals. We speak at neuroscience conferences. I'm invited to give keynote talks at neuroscience groups all the time. Um, uh, I'm past that. But. It was less that I wasn't part of the club. It was more like what we were doing, what I wanted to do was considered by many too ambitious yeah. and um, not possible or, you know, fanciful uh, type of thing. Not by everybody. Um, uh, quite a few neuroscientists are excited about what we're doing, but many people, many neuroscientists were told, you know, uh, hey, I'll get a, a, a stretch of st another story here. In physics, there are theoretical physicists and there are experimental physicists. It's a very well understood division of labor. In neuroscience, there wasn't any theoretical neuroscientists. It was all experimental neuroscientists. And, and many neuroscientists were told, 
you it's it's a you know you really can't be a theoretical neuroscientist. It, you can't. It's it's a useless task. You need just need to be an experimentalist. And if you don't have the data, then it, you shouldn't say anything. Um, and but not everyone believed that. But the, that's there were places where that was sort of the mantra. And so I had to deal with that a lot. Um, where, but now it's totally changed. Now there are lots of theoretical neuroscientists and the work we're doing is, is uh, much more mainstream. Um, People also in like uh, research in startups uh, and uh, you know, industry a lot more than uh, perhaps they once did. Yeah. You have, you know, you know, I have, well, my personal research, you know, we're outside of a university, but we could talk about how I ended up there. Um, but um, yeah, the, the, it, it, again, when you're really trying to do something new that no one's done before, you got to be creative and you just got to come up with whatever works for you. Yeah. Um, and that's what I have to do. Yeah. Well, I think maybe maybe we'll uh, circle back to some of the more career oriented stuff towards the end as we start to get into the, the theory itself. Um, but I want to I want to start in on that. And I guess the first thing I want to. Uh, ask about is Vernon Mountcastle. That's one of my favorite parts of your story. It's been he's he's featured prominently in in both On Intelligence and The Thousand Brain Theory. Yeah, and uh, I sort of uh, conceive of him as the sort of like foundational figure in the origin myth of your of your work and your uh, <laughs> your brain theory and that sort of stuff because he's sort of this like mystical figure who had secrets into like you know he had he had he had an understanding of the way the brain works in your um you know sort of as your theory describes it before really anyone else could put their finger on it and you uncovered the sort of mythical documents and as far as i can tell he's not really a venerated figure in neuroscience for other people i don't hear other people talk about him in the way that you do so he's he's really, really somewhat he's 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 kind of a, a maker. He's certainly not like you know the Watson and Crick of neuroscience or something like that. Um, but he's very he was very he's he's passed away now. He was very well respected. He was um, uh, he was uh, he was really the person most associated with with thinking about the neocortex as a whole, um, which is the biggest part of our brain. That's stuff we study. Um, so he was. He was, um, and, he, and he wrote beautiful uh, papers and books. Um, so I think he was, he was very well respected. He's, he, you know, some people used to call him like one of the quote fathers of neuroscience, um, but he didn't break out of that into some sort of stardom role. Um, most, most neuroscientists are familiar with his basic idea, which, which I talk about a lot in the book, um, this idea that there's a common algorithm in the neocortex. Most neuroscientists are aware that he came up with that idea, but most neuroscientists don't really know what he said about it. Uh, at least many of them don't. Um, and so Renan Mankow wrote this monograph in 1979, I think it was. I always forget, is it 79 or 75? Anyway, uh, he wrote this monograph, which was kind of a dry technical read, right? But he proposed this amazing idea in this, in this 100 page um, paper. Um, and and it and yet the idea is everyone sort of knows about it a bit, but it's just so many neuroscientists just dis discount it. It's just not in their thinking. They don't incorporate it into their thinking about their research. Where I embrace, I embraced it completely, and it was the foundation for all the work we did. Um, and it's an amazing idea. It, I in my book, A Thousand Brains, I 
I, I, I sort of equate it to Darwin's theory of evolution. What, what Vernon Malmcastle came up was a really big idea that was surprising that really would just, uh, and it was a, a very, very important. And I can, I'll just state what it is right now. If you, if you think about our human brain, there's a neocortex, which is a big wrinkle thing on top. It's a big sheet of cells, a big sheet of neural tissue. And um, different areas do different things. So there's language areas and vision areas and hearing areas and touch areas and areas that do mathematics and so on. And Vernon Malcolm said, well, if you look at the, the detailed architecture um, in those different areas of the neocortex and the, the neuron types and how they're connected and so on, it's very complicated, but it's almost identical everywhere. And he said, well, how can it be the same everywhere? And he says, well, because turns out that all those things that the neocortex does are all fundamentally the same. So somehow vision is fundamentally the same as hearing, which is fundamentally the same as language, which is fundamentally the same as thinking about everything. Uh, and he says, and he said, the neocortex is divided into these columns. It's 150,000 of them, basically, that are all doing the same thing. And if you take a column and hook it to an eye, you get vision. If you hook it to the ear, you get hearing. So this is an amazing idea. It's almost as crazy as you know Darwin's idea. Darwin says we have this one algorithm that leads to all this diversity of life, and then Malkus is saying, well, there's this one algorithm in the brain that leads to all the diversity of intelligence, all the things we think about of our, our intelligent lives, and um, so that was like that to me was like, oh my goodness, that's that's, that's the most amazing idea. And if you if you can figure out what that element is, what the common cortical algorithm is, then you figure out the whole thing. So many researchers, almost very, very, the vast majority of neuroscientists do not guide their work based on what Malmkastle said, those who study the neocortex. They study specific functions, specific, they'll, they'll treat vision as vision and hearing as hearing and other things as other things. Um, and, and not say, hey, what's the commonality between all these things? Um, we've embraced it. And I think that's the key to the success we've had. Um, so he's he was a super influential figure in my in my uh, in my research. Yeah, no, uh, in, incredibly compelling and provocative ideas. I guess yeah. my my background is in computational cognitive science, or a lot of my background is, and so I'm pretty used to arguments about how um, well what neuroscientists are doing is not going to get us to a theoretical understanding of human intelligent behavior. And oh, well, you know, what's AI researchers in neuro, uh, and using neural networks? Well, here's all the things that neural networks cannot do uh, that you really need in order to have uh, human intelligence. And so the, the couple things that stand out to me about your uh, theory that, that um, you know, deviate from what I, uh, you know, sort of have, have had as the received wisdom is that, first of all, what we're looking for is this universal cortical algorithm where you can feed it data from vision. You can feed it data from, uh, uh, you know, uh, audition from hearing. You can, you can feed it data from language, and uh, given you know the right uh, situation, it is the the single cortical algorithm is is capable of making sense of all these data. And then the second thing is, um, well, where are we going to look for this? Well, cortical yeah. columns, and yeah. uh, the cortical columns thing uh, that uh, I guess I, I don't have a good pulse of how often. Uh, theoretical neuroscientists talk about cortical columns, but if they do so a lot, I certainly have not seen it uh, in that. And so that seems like a big, big part of what you're saying, which would be um, a, a very 
you know, I guess you could say a profound retooling of, 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 of what I've seen a lot of people who are interested in these kinds of questions. Yeah. Again, the cortical column idea didn't come from me. It came from Bernard Mountcastle and it's, and it's been, and he spent decades basically countering people who said it didn't exist. Um, and he, he wrote multiple papers on it and they're very convincing. Um, and it's, I think some people reject the idea just because they have trouble believing it. <laughs> it's just like, they just, they can't imagine what would this algorithm be that does these things. Cause if you, if you spent your life thinking about vision or language and you've developed this whole theory that's just about vision or just about language, it's hard for you to imagine that somehow they're the same. And, um, and so they, it's people just, you know, this whole world's about vision that have nothing to do with touch or hearing, you know, it's like, but in the brain, in the cortex, it's clear that they're being processed in, in very similar ways. So it's, it's odd. Uh, the thing about cortical columns, one of the things about them is if you look at the neocortex under a microscope, um, you don't see cortical columns. They're not physically distinguishable. Uh, I can explain why they exist. Um, you do see something called a mini column, which is physically distinguishable. And Vernon Mountcastle wrote about that too. A mini column is a very, very skinny, 110 cells. And it's part of how the, the brain um, grows when you're in utero. Um, and so we have hundreds of millions of these mini columns, but there's several hundred mini columns in a larger column. The reason we say, so when, if you look at it and someone says, well, I don't see a column there. I can see many columns, but I don't see any columns. So what are you talking about? And what Mountcastle shows, uh, I, I, there's this figure, I'll just describe it to you, but he showed this exists pretty much throughout the neocortex. If you were, if you were to imagine this sheet of cells, which is this neural tissue, which is neocortex. And if you put, you can put a probe vertically through it, down like, there's like two and a half millimeters thick. You can put a probe down straight through the two and a half millimeters, or you can put it going sideways in it, and you can record from the cells. Well, if you take a, a part of the visual system and and you and you you probe you put the probe vertically through the surface, you'll find all the cells you contact all are responding to some small part of the retina, right? So the, the retina is projecting to the cortex, and there's a small part of the retina that these cells will respond to. But if you go at a diagonal through the neocortex, you'll see that for about a millimeter, the cells all respond to one part of the, uh, the retina, but then they abruptly shift to another part of the retina. And then they abruptly shift to another part of the retina, about every millimeter. And, and the same thing is true on your skin. If, if you were doing the same experiment with somatosensory cortex, which gets input from your skin, you'd find that all the cells respond to one patch of skin for about a millimeter of, of area in the cortex, and then they abruptly switch to the next patch. So, so Mountcastle said, look, what's going on is that the neural tissue, the reason there's these columns is that every, every cortical column is getting input from, from some area of some sensory patch. And then um, the next column over is getting input from a different area. It's not like a continuous uh, transition. It just jumps to the next patch. And so he says, it's like these columns are just responding. They're, they're processing input from different um, uh, areas of, of the sensory world or other parts of the brain. And, uh, and so he had multiple papers on that um, and showing that this exists across modalities and so on. But, you know, again, someone says, well, I look under a microscope, but I don't see any columns. So what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I, I think this goes back to what you're saying, that especially, you know, back in the day, there were empirical neuroscientists, but not theoretical neuroscience. If you are looking uh, at the brain through, you know, the way disciplinary neuroscientists traditionally do, which is through one particular sensory modality, then yeah, you, you're not really sympathetic to like, well, all sensory modalities are fundamentally the same. It's like, no, well, I'd do something different than the audition. Yeah. And so, but if you're motivated theoretically, which 
uh, you know, cognitive scientists would be, you were back in the day, uh, Mount Castle was, uh, then yeah, you get theoretical elegance. Who doesn't love the yeah. promise of a single uh, equation algorithm computer program to solve all the yeah. things? Cody here. If you're hearing this, then my guest and I probably just finished talking about the books that have most influenced their way of thinking. This is always one of my favorite questions. One reason is because a person's favorite books or a smattering of the ones that come to mind at any rate, is such an interesting portrait of the way they think. But it's also a great way to find new books. There are so many books out there, especially ones that seem hot right now. But let's face it, not every one of them is going to really change the way you think about something important. One of the most effective ways to find those high-value titles is to read the things that have been most impactful to the people you admire or look up to. Speaking personally, after these interviews, I often find myself ordering the books we talked about or other books by the author that I may not have read prior to our conversation. And so I've started compiling book lists based on each episode of Cognitive Revolution. Each list collects a few of the books we talked about, any notable works by the author, and whatever else I thought would fit nicely with the rest. I appreciate you listening to Cognitive Revolution, and I genuinely hope you get something out of these conversations. If you do, I have no doubt some of these books will also be of interest to you. Instead of asking for money to support this podcast through Patreon or some other service, I'm asking you to buy a book. My book lists are hosted through bookshop.org. If you're in the US or UK, you can buy a book on my list, or actually any available book, and 10% of your purchase goes to supporting this podcast. You can find my list at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash lowercase cognitive revolution. In the UK, it is uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Buying a book through these lists is the best way to support the Cognitive Revolution podcast, so please check them out and see if anything catches your eye. You know, so cortical columns, I think we've, we've got that. There's a couple things that are, so those, those the, the, univer, the search for the universal cortical algorithm and uh, the locating it within cortical columns. Those seem like two big pillars. There's a sort of second, in my under, my the way I see your theory, there's a sort of second layer um, of, of other important things, um, which I'm a little bit, so I guess I just want to know, you know, so those two things I think are very, very interesting, very compelling, uh, that sort of stuff. And some of these other things, I think uh, I'm just curious to know how you touch base a little bit more with the neuroscience literature on them. For one uh, example is, is you have reference frames as this key idea of, so what sort of information, what model of, what are, what are cortical columns doing? They're building a model of the world. What, what, how are we going to talk about them? We're going to talk about them in terms of reference frames. And so you have, uh, I just have one sentence written down that, um, you know, sort of captures a lot of what you say in general about these that, uh, quote, we must have neurons whose activities, who activity, whose activity represents the location of every object that we perceive. And so I guess I'm, uh, wondering how is, and you talk about grid cells and, and play cells, that sort of stuff. But this is, I mean, this is basically the idea of, of cognitive maps, which goes back to at least the 1940s with like Edward Tolman and that sort of stuff. And, and yet you don't seem to make as much contact with um, the neuroscience literature, at least in your, in your book on that. So I'm wondering where does the way you've been thinking about intersect with the way people have been talking about it? Um, for well, that's interesting. I, I, so, I mean, I think I do make a lot of connections to neuroscience. Again, I'm a neuroscientist. We live and we talk and live in the world of neuroscience. So, we collaborate with neuroscientists. We're 
constantly, you know, we have them visiting our labs all the time. We are neuroscientists. Um, it's not we're outside of the world at all. Um, the, uh, I, you know, there, I, you know, I have to admit my large ignorance of cognitive maps and things like that. We approach this, we want to understand how the actual neural tissue works, how real neurons with real dendrites and dendritic processing and synapses and all this stuff are actually working. We don't come up with cognitive theories. We're not a cognitive theory shop. We are a neuroscience shop. And we're saying, say, okay. And one of the things we determined, theoretical deduction, uh, and I got through this in the book, is that the cortex has to keep track of locations of things in the world. And it has to keep track of the location of your sensory organs, where your finger is relative to various things as you're touching it and so on. And I make this point that every cortical column is doing this. So that was a logical deduction. Um, and then we had to say, well, how do the neural tissue do this? Because it's very hard to imagine how neurons, cells, not some abstract concept like a cognitive map, but how real neurons create reference frames and represent locations. And we were very fortunate that there's this huge amount of literature and research in this um, about other parts of the brain, the antirhinal cortex and the hippocampus and the subiculum, which are not part of the neocortex that we know how there's these cells called grid cells and play cells and these other types of cells that actually learn maps of environments. And what we made, we realized that that mechanism, which is which we can study and we know how it works um, to a large extent, people know how it works. It's very complicated, but we understand a lot of it. We said, okay, that is almost certainly the same mechanism that's gonna be used in the neocortex. That was speculation. Um, and so we said, it's unlikely that the that the nature would have evolved a similar mechanism twice because it's so complicated. And um, so we made this speculation that the same kind of grid cells and play cells that we see exist in these older parts of the brain are going to be in the neocortex. Now that was that was a theoretical, speculative prediction, right? Uh, based on a lot of good arguments, but it was a theorist prediction. And now we know, right now, there's lots of evidence coming in, empirical evidence supporting that. Um, and so now we have that. We now, so we, this is, it's, it's so the people have shown that there are grid cells in the cortex or something. Which is really like cool. Like that yeah, is, it is. They, didn't, they didn't have to be there. And they're, it's like they're like big for understanding of the hippocampus uh, and, and your theoretical derivation that they should also be in the cortex is really cool. It is, and, and but you know, we were pretty confident about it. I mean, I was really confident. I was like, "This is gonna have to be there," but you know, it's not proven. I don't proven think anyone's ever proven. accused you of, of lack of confidence. Uh, yeah, but you know, <laughs> I, I make a, I had a little call out in the book, and I talked about this because people often misunderstand that, and and I talk about how you can be so confident about something uh, that you don't have strong empirical evidence for it yet. And um, I, I go through this, I, I talk about the constraints on a problem and how you develop a set of constraints. And when you have a solution that solves many constraints, you can be very confident that it's correct. Many people seem to struggle with this idea. Many people will say, well, how can you be confident about this? I'm not confident about everything. There's many things I'll say, eh, I'm, I'm guessing on this one. Um, but when you solve a whole series of theoretical constraints at once or biological constraints at once, like you, you have all these problems you're trying to solve at the same time. And when you come up with a solution that solves them all, you're almost guaranteed that it's correct. It's a, mm. it's a numbers thing. It's a mathematical thing. And that's how you feel about it. So I know some people are, are almost annoyed how confident I can be at times, but I'm, I, it's very measured. I, I don't, and, and so in this case, I wasn't, I'm not surprised at all we found the grid, grid cells in the cortex because I expected they're going to be there. Um, 
So we now know that's true. Now, I, you mentioned Tolman. I, you know, I'm vaguely, vaguely familiar with that work. But all that stuff was way back in the day, if I recall. And it was before anyone had any idea how the neuroscience would do any of this stuff. So I was less interested in, in cognitive theory and psychological theories and so on. I felt they were not going to allow me to, they were not going to necessarily drive me in the right direction on the neuroscience. And for every, you know, there's, there's dozens of different theories, cognitive theories that were proposed over the decades. And how would I know which is the right one? So we always stuck very closely to the neuroscience. We we're like, okay, we're going to stick to empirical data from neuro, you know, neuroscience. We're going to, we're going to use those as logical constraints. And we're never going to deviate from that. And, um, and we, we don't spend a lot of time looking at cognitive theories, especially from the past and psychological theories, uh, because there's a very big gap between them and the neuroscience. Um, so we, we've always been really down in the weeds, like neurons, synapses, you know, neural tissue circuits and things like that. Hmm. Do you have a position on predictive coding? Uh, this, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a widespread, you know, wi widely used framework, um, that, you know, when people, neuroscientists sort of talk about understanding the brain it often comes up and it's, it's, it's sympathetic with your idea because you talk about how the brain is a prediction, uh, machine, sort of engine, yeah, yeah. prediction machine, that sort of stuff. And I, and, uh, I was just wondering if, if you have take a position on the overlap, uh, or, or yeah, sure. Like we've, we've studied that a lot. And, um, I mean, you know, one of the observations I made, which was the genesis of my first book on intelligence, was that the neocortex is making, just constantly making predictions about the world. Um, and that's, it, and you're not aware of these predictions, but it's constantly doing that about what you're going to feel, what you're going to see, what you're going to hear. And, and, and from that, basically, we can derive that the cortex must have some sort of model of the world that lets it make these predictions. Right? Um, now, so that sounds a lot like predictive coding because predictive coding is like, oh, we got these models and making these predictions, but it, there's some fundamental differences. And there's lots of flavors of predictive coding. So we, sure. you know, it's, it's a broad, course, yeah, it's, like it's, the, it's, um, but one of the things that predictive coding um, theorists uh, argue is that uh, what you, what's passed from uh, hierarchically from region to region in the cortex is errors. That is the, the mismatch. Um, and um, um, and I don't believe that's right. Hmm. Um, I, I don't think that's right at all. Um, so we can start deviating very quickly from like, well, yes, yes, there's a predictive model, but how you think the whole thing works is very different than the way I think it works. Hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, all right, so I this is a little bit. So we've we've, we've covered some of the stuff that's the the crux of the theory. I want to like take a step back. And I think this is um, a critique of the approach in general. And but you know, Cody, I, I want to do that. But I don't think we've covered the crux of the theory. And so, if, if could I take a minute to, to I do would that? Love that? Okay, I don't think we've done that. So, uh, we've talked about the neocortex. We've talked about how these columns are doing the same thing. What we've discovered, and what is the core of the Thousand Brains book and the Thousand Brain theory, that each cortical column, you have 150,000 of them up in your head. Is, is a sensory motor modeling system that each cortical column is able to generate behavior. And as it generates behavior, they have cells, literally they have cells that project outside of the cortex, which makes something move, okay? Um, they, and that's true in the visual system and the auditory system and the somatosensory system. And, um, 
And that, and so each one is building a model of, of the world through movement. It's integrating its inputs through time, through movement. So it's like, if, if I imagine my finger is moving, uh, touching something, as it moves, it's not just a series of impressions. It's building a three-dimensional model of the thing I'm touching. So if I move my finger over this coffee cup, the finger, the columns in my co cortex that are getting from my finger are building the structure of this cortex, of this cup. So it's a complete sensory motor modeling system. The second thing is we learned how that modeling system works. It's based on these reference frames using grid cells. So it builds a little, like a little CAD model inside the neurons actually build these, um, literally have these reference frames where they assign um, uh, structure to objects. And then finally, the reason that we have 150,000 of these, but we don't have, we don't feel like we have a lot of brains, right? We don't feel like we have 150,000 things. So another big part of the theory is that these columns vote through these certain long range connections and what we perceive is the consensus of the voting. So I, if my fingers are touching this coffee cup, there's, there's hundreds of models of, of the coffee cup being invoked at this point in time. Each part of my skin is touching this cup, it has its own model of the cup, but they're not, each one on its own can't really be certain what it is until they move, but they can vote together and very quickly reach a consensus. So those are the key elements of the thousand brains theory. And we call it the thousand brains theory because everything you know, if I ask myself, where is knowledge of a cup like this stored? It's not stored in one place. It's stored in thousands of independent models um, in the cortex. Not every column in the cortex will, only a small subset will learn this coffee cup, but it'll be, it'll be thousands of them. So that's, that's the basic theory. Uh, and there's a lot of implications for it about what it is to think and how we create them and so on. But okay, now we can go on. No, I, that, I don't that, think we'd cover that. That's fine. I mean, I so uh, I you're you're right. I think that is the glue that holds the theory together. And obviously, the name is derived from what you just described. So yeah, uh, there's that. But I guess my my thing with that totally, you know, I could I could buy lots of that. But that also seems like one of those things. Like, well, that's that's Marvin Minsky Society of Mind. Like that's that's like one of the earliest things that people thought about. Well, how have, you neurons... read his, have you read his book, A Thousand uh, a Society of Mind? No, I, I have a familiarity with that book in the way that most neuroscientists, as you say, would uh, be familiar with Mountcastle. They know, hey, he talked about it, but they have no idea what he said about it. Well, it seems like democracy and voting among neurons. No, and no, it's tradition to read about it. It's, it's, I know it sounds similar because it's, uh, you know, it's completely different. Hmm. And, um, and so that's why I asked, because I think you haven't read the book. Because if you read it, you realize it's completely different. Um, Marvin Minsky uh, had very poor knowledge of neuroscience. He wasn't really interested in it. It has nothing to do with the brain, really, uh, his book. He basically lists, in that book, he lists about a page, one page per idea. And he, it's, a, it's sort of like a random list of ideas he had about things brains must do. And they're all over the map. I mean, there's no consistency to it. There's no organization to it. It's like, here's all these different types of weird stuff you you must solve. And somehow, somehow the brain does this. That's pretty much the summary of that book. And, um, and you're so reading directly you're off the back cover, I'm sure. What's that? Reading directly off the back, uh, the back, the, the back dust jacket of the book. Oh, what do you mean reading off the no, back? I'm and that's, just, I read that book, yeah, be carefully. So that's, that's my interpretation of reading the book. Fair enough. Um, it wasn't the back, you know, I read that book. I said, and, and I talked to Marvin Minsky about it uh, in the past. He's, he's gone now, but, um, and, uh, and, 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 and so it's, uh, it's, it's just not really related. Um, it's just a completely different take on it. If you want to figure out how the, how the brain works, you cannot derive it from that book. 
or that idea. It's just, it's just, a, a, it's, it's a collections of musings about him that he had about things we must do the, and, and problems that we saw, were able to solve. But if you say, okay, what is, is there a common algorithm? No, he doesn't talk about that. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It's, it's, it's a hundred different things that are unrelated that have different algorithms and he doesn't talk how they work together or any of that stuff. So it's, it's, um, it's really not the same at all. Hmm. Understood. My and I and I caught you because I knew you didn't read the book. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess here here is here's my my problem with not only what you're proposing, but proposals of how to make more sophisticated AI in general. And so, mm-hmm. taking your um, sort of framework. I guess my, my question is sort of if it's important that the brain is composed of, you know, a thousand brains, as the theory suggests, how is it also not important that society is composed of thousands of brains? Sort of what I what I mean by this is that, like, you know, you don't get Newton saying like, oh, gee, good. Thank goodness I have such a big neocortex. That's what allows me to do you know, uh, have all my insights. He's like, no, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And also, sure, as you well, talk about sure, in the but, book, but, the exponential but, growth of societal change yeah, is not based but, on uh, a change in endogenous human intelligence. It's on the exogenous uh, accumulation of, of culture and technology, all that sort of well, stuff. There's nothing fine, to do with the but, neocortex. But I'm not, you know, th- I think you're, you're, you're abstracting something that doesn't make sense, Cody. Um, we are humans. We have a brain. It works. It's a system, right? Um, now, yes, they work together in societies. Great. But we as an individuals can do things. We're smart. We can fi- figure out how to do, use tools and so on. And, and what we, when we try to make intelligent machines, we want to do something like that. Uh, we, it's not about machine intelligence. isn't about machine societies. It's about machine intelligence. And so uh, if you want to build an intelligent machine, you want to understand what's going on in individual humans' head. It doesn't mean that the machines won't work together the way humans work together. Uh, it doesn't imply that at all. Um, and so I don't just the fact that the fact that we have societies and that we, you know, we, we share information. In fact, in the book, I talk a lot about how most of what we know comes through language because we can't directly experience it. And therefore we we share information that way and intelligent machines will do the same thing. But if you want to build an intelligent machine, it's not the same as building an intelligent society. It's building like you know something that's equivalent to a human in some ways, um, or an animal. Um, and so uh, I, I don't. I think you can totally separate those two issues out completely. People who are interested in machine intelligence are interested in replicating the abilities of human intelligence, um, and that is not to deny the fact that humans interact with each other. It is not. It doesn't say that building an intelligent machine is on its own all by itself no not at all in fact intelligent machines are interactive with humans too so so um, you I, you are I describing think... the mainstream view of pretty much everyone who works on on ai is that what we we want to do is we want to create a solitary intelligence uh, I, I, to... I don't want to say solitary i i think well, well, you're okay pretty... no, no i i let me let me let me see, let me say what i'm i'm gonna say um which uh. is that um so yeah, the the issue here is that Jeff, I think you are very smart. I think you are an incredibly intelligent agent who can look at the coffee cup around you and you can do all these things that you you describe which all all of your 
uh, examples, at least early on, describing the theory are, are very office-oriented, very this is Jeff's world right here. Um, and you are also able to make all these incredible predictions about how the brain works, how mobile computing is going to work. You are very uh, intelligent. How did you become that intelligent? Is it because you have this incredible neocortex? Yes. But is it also because you grew up in a society where you could be told about electrical engineering and uh, all these things and you built off this and you stand on the shoulders of giants like Newton and all course, that sort of stuff? Of yeah, course, and I think but AI people uh, just fundamentally are discounting that, even though it is a crucial part of human intelligence, and lots of people outside of uh, AI understand that in important ways. Okay, so I think I think you're bringing a bias to this, but I don't want to. I won't just be able to sway you from it, perhaps. But first of all, I'm I'm not more intelligent than other people. I'm not sure I, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, we all are intelligent about lots of things. Um, and uh, I've been fortunate enough to be in positions where I've been able to take my whatever talents I have, apply them fruitfully. Um, so put that aside. I mean, every human is intelligent and we all are able to manipulate and do things. The idea that, you know, um, the, I, I don't think AI researchers discount what, what you're saying. I don't think they discount the, the role of um, shared information, which are societies do. Um, I wrote about it extensively in my book. I wrote in my new book, A Thousand Brains. I wrote about how most of what we know, we can't directly experience. We have to get from other sources. I wrote about how that leads to the risk of false beliefs. This is a key theme in my book. And so to say that I didn't mention it, I, I think is in, disingenuous. Um, and, but still, I can ask myself, how does a brain work, right? A brain is a physical entity. I can ask how that works. Um, it doesn't mean that I have to answer how societies work or, you know, uh, I can ask, what is a brain? How do I build it? We don't want something equivalent to it. And yes, they, you know, they, they have to work together to achieve things. And I, and I address that quite extensively, but I don't think that's the goal of AI. The goal of AI is to understand how to build this intelligent agent like that would be like an animal, like a human. Um, and yet at the same time, um, uh, they will, of course, participate in large societal, uh, have large societal impacts. Uh, you can even argue something like a dog. You can say, well, dogs are pretty smart. Um, and they have much less of that communications and much less of standing on giants. And we'd be happy to be able to build something as smart as a dog. So let's set our goals realistically, right? Um, um, let's start with saying, what is a brain? How does it work? What is intelligence in, a, in an individual human? And I'm not talking about societal intelligence, but of course we have to agree, understand that we do through language, we are able to learn about many, many other things that other people did. So I, I think you're just extending the word intelligence to be a societal issue. And I'm saying, yeah, well, I'm saying intelligence is defined by an individual brain, but that's not to deny that societal consequences come about when these things interact. I, I just, maybe it's a, a wording issue. Um, so certainly, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate all that. And um, I think if you are not necessarily even inclined towards like cognitive, uh, you know, like uh, stuff, then yeah, but we, we will, there'd be a lot of, we have to do a lot of groundwork to, to, to be able to talk about the same things in the same way. I, yeah. I guess what my point is, is that I feel like um, 
this is, from my perspective, a an undervalued idea in in AI, and it would take a long time uh, for well, us. Well, that's to good. That. So I think that's right. So so then you could make that your career if you wanted to. Pass. But Thank I would. <laughs> but I wouldn't say that AI is wrong. I would say you're trying to extend it um, in ways and make people aware of other issues. Uh, again, I you know. I can say, here's a human, here's a brain. That brain works in certain ways. Can I, can I understand that? Can I replicate that? That is a tremendously difficult challenge and a great goal. And, and to be able to do that, even just make the equivalent of a dog's brain, is, shouldn't take away from that uh, just because you say, well, that dog doesn't under, can't understand quantum physics. You know, it's, <laughs> still, it's okay. Um, uh, you know, we can, we can really tackle one thing at a time. And I think it'd be great to say, okay, well, how do, how do brains interact with each other to create more of a societal uh, intelligence? And that's a great endeavor. Right, okay, um, uh, so this, this, this isn't my point, is not that, okay, well, because... I mean, it depends on on if we want to actually try and, and and cover this ground to get to the thing. But no, I mean, this is this is the problem with neuroscientists and AI people. Is they think that okay, here's intelligence, and there's cherry on top. That is culture and interaction. It's like oh, that'd be a nice to have, but it's not a necessary. I think that's a fundamentally misguided assumption. Okay, uh, well, that is shared among I think, literally everyone I think, in AI. I think you're over. Someone... I think you're overstating people's uh, opinions about that. Just like you've obviously. You know, you've overstated my opinion about it. I don't. I don't agree. It's just this little cherry on top. Um, I, I don't agree with that. That's not how I think about it. Yet at the same time, I can write a book about how a human brain works, and and I think that's important. And I think you'd find that most uh, scientists wouldn't take the position you're taking. Some might that, that, that it's an implicitly assumed that yes, of course, these interactions between brains and, and societal things are going to be important. But let's tackle one thing at a time. So um, I think you're overcharacterizing or mischaracterizing how most scientists would feel about that. I don't think I could at the same time agree to you. You might say, well, I don't think enough people have spent time thinking about these societal interactions. And I say, great, you can, that may be right, and you should do that. Um, but I, I don't think you should uh, imply that other people don't realize that. Uh, I don't think that's right. And now we've said enough about it, perhaps. <laughs> Points taken. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, can I ask you yeah. one more question? Because uh, I want to sure. be respectful of your time. Uh, we're coming up on, a, we've done an hour here, but I've, I've got one thing that I really want to get your perspective on, especially for the the kind of audience that this show is aimed, aimed after. Um, and that is, what do you think neuroscientists or maybe neuroscientists slash AI people should be doing? Right. Especially in the context of your own experience, whereas, you know, like, you know, we've talked about there's all these roadblocks and institutional issues and so on with doing, you know, neuroscience in the classic grad student academic path. Should all the neuroscientists go make a bunch of money and then come back with the freedom to pursue like yeah, of course not. Of a, a course much not. grander agenda? Like, no, how do you no. what, like if you if you could re-architect, you know, if, if you could have your say, I'm like, oh, this is how I'd like to see neuroscience uh, progress, yeah. um, and you could just sort of wave your magic wand. What, yeah, like how how would you think about that? What would you? you, know, would you do? I I I don't even think I I try to avoid thinking about that. I don't. I look at the way the world is today, and I don't say it's wrong or should be better. It just is what it is. And and when I was when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, and I was told I couldn't do this, I didn't think oh neuroscience is broken. 
I didn't say, oh, these guys are all wrong. I didn't say that at all. I said, okay, this is the way it is. How do I accomplish what I want to accomplish? And that's the way I look at it now too. There's nothing wrong with the way neuroscience is structured today. I think it's great. There are academic neuroscientists, there are corporate neuroscientists, there are people, independent companies doing things. Um, you know, my path is a little bit unique, um, but we're still neuroscientists. I, I'm gonna, you know, we, and we live in the world of neuroscience. Um, and, um, but it's in some sense, I, I wouldn't want to prescribe how, how other people should go about their work. I wouldn't want to prescribe how you should go about your work or how anybody should do about it. Um, I have my opinions about which, which uh, research approaches are more likely to be fruitful and which ones aren't, but who am I to tell someone what to do? No, not at all. So I think it is what it is. Um, and the way, I, the way I view my, and I think this is a, maybe a good lesson for other people, maybe not, I don't know. But you, know, you don't have to try to change things. Just say, okay, this is the way it is. How do I work within this system? And maybe by working within the system, I'll change things. Um, you know, we started, when I started, I could not do theoretical neuroscience at Berkeley, right? Or anywhere. Then 19 years later, I, you know, I had created, we didn't talk about this, but I created the Redmond Neuroscience Institute, which was a, a research institute, nonprofit that focused on theoretical theories of neocortex. And now um, Berkeley asked if we could, they could have that. So it's now at Berkeley, okay? Um, so did I change Berkeley? I don't know, you know, but they decided later on their own, they wanted to do have th some theoretical neuroscience. So we were able to take what I was working on. Uh, again, I don't think of it as like, oh, they should have been doing this. No, it is what it is. So that's my philosophy in life is that you don't, don't look at the way the world's like, oh, this is bad. It should be this, or I should change it. Or they should do something different. No, I think it works pretty well. And it's up to us individually. If we think we have a better idea on how to do something, figure out how to do it and, and fit within that system. And that's what I did. I don't think my path is typical, nor would I even recommend it to most people, um, you know, it wasn't easy to make a lot of money. I'll tell you that. Um, it was many, many hard years of work. And I did it for other reasons. I did it because I love mobile computing and I thought that was important. And as a consequence of that, I got the resources that I could now do different types of neuroscience, which, which easier to do than if I didn't have those resources. So um, I think that's, the, I just want to leave it that way. It's like, no, there's nothing wrong with the way the world is. And our work fits in really well with the neuroscience, the other empirical neuroscience world. We, we were very well respected. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's working well. It's maybe not you know, some ideal situation, but it worked, it's working pretty well. <laughs> well, I think that's a great way to do neuroscience. I also think it's a great way to be happy. That, that sounds really beautiful to me. I like, I like that, uh, that way of-, of Yeah, I think I, that's the way, it's a good way of putting it, uh, Cody. I like, I like to think like, I'm an optimist, I wanna be happy. And so whatever life throws at you, and, and of course at times it can be very difficult. Um, um, but, you know, just say, okay, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to make lemonade out of these lemons, you know, or how am I going to accomplish what I want to accomplish, given the resources I have, and given the, the, the situation I find myself in. And I, I think there's always a way, there's always a way to accomplish what you want to get done. It may take a while. In my case, it took 20 years yeah. to get to the, to be what I wanted to be, yeah. to have the position I wanted to have. Okay. I had to sign up for that. Yeah, which which I which I love by the way. It's such a fantastic story, and I'm I'm always so fascinated by those roundabout things in, in people's careers, especially when they architect them in some um, you know very intentional way like that. Uh, so yeah, I think that's pretty unusual. And most people don't put together like a twenty year plan, you know. But uh, um, yeah, but it, some people do. 
You know, know, Jeff, I also want to make it clear that I don't want to have come off as denigrating your theory or your project, both of which (laughs) I'm a huge fan of, as I I think I've, I've said several times. Uh, you know, so I, uh, I, I, uh, I certainly wouldn't want to come across being flippant or disrespectful okay, of okay. your uh, endeavor to uh, understand the brain. I, I, uh, I, I have uh, points of departure of disagreement. Perhaps you don't like the way that I, I stated them. Uh, you know, perhaps you feel I stated them too strongly. Um, uh, but, uh, I, I just want to make sure that, you know, that, um, you know, I mean, no disrespect and that's all right. No uh, problem. Such hey, you know, what I would recommend though, is, uh, just if, if your listeners, uh, if they're interested in this, they really should read the book and uh, it's called a thousand brains, a new theory of intelligence. And, um, uh, this is what it looks like. If you want to see it, I'm, pro- I'm promoting it, not because I want to sell books because I'm, I want to sell ideas. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and we and, didn't talk, we didn't talk about the whole third section of the book which is about the future of humanity, which is some of the most fascinating stuff. So we'll leave that off, but um, the book covers a lot of ground. Absolutely. Uh, and I, you know, I, I would love it if um, people took up your torch or be like, mm, I think Jeff is really wrong about some of this, these key cortical colonies and came up with their own competing, uh, but equally ambitious theory. I would love yeah. to see um, uh, more of that in neuroscience. I really do hope uh, ultimately I personally am not interested in, uh, you know, as you say, brain theory and that sort of stuff. Um, I, I, I am fascinated by it, but it's not what I want to do with my see, I, thing. See, he, uh, now, here's my little dig on you, Cody. I don't think if you take, whether it's cognitive theory or psychology or um, psychiatry or pedagogy, all these fields really should care about what goes on in neuroscience because Neuroscience is, is, is the fundamental substrate where all these things happen. One can have various cognitive theories or psychological theories, but, but if they're not grounded in the sort of, you know, atomic st- structure of the brain, uh, then, then how can you be certain they're right? Uh, it's, it's like, you know, we can study genetics and build, um, uh, and build you know, vaccines, for example, but all that research is fundamentally based on the idea of genes and, and DNA, and which is fundamentally built on atomic theory. And so I think, I think it's essential for any of these fields. Yeah, but you, you have it in space. I mean, so you, you say that, but you also don't study electrons and on that sort of stuff. So there is, there is a bottom level where here's the physical substrate in which it's taken. Yeah. Here yeah, is but the I think, ethereal yeah, so we'll just have to disagree about that. Are, I mean, the idea and that- so you're saying this is level what you have to understand or do I, I, I yeah, disagree. I, I think there are other levels that you don't have to understand neuroscience to get it, just like you don't think you have to understand muons or quarks and that sort of stuff. Well, actually, we do have to understand uh, many ionic uh, atomic processes going on the bank. I, I understand your point. I, 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 Cody, I'll just be honest. I think you're just totally wrong about it. That that you cannot really develop theories of cognition without a deep understanding of what's going on in the brain, and, and the deep understanding of the brain will will inform those theories. You can you can develop them, but you have to they have to be based on that. I think if you look at the history of AI. AI has tried to build intelligent machines for decades, many decades, and it's really failed in that in that endeavor. It, it's now doing some very useful things, but they're not intelligent. And most AI researchers will admit that. Um, and, and the reason is because we haven't had a good theory of what intelligence is. What is it, what is it at its substrate? So in, in the thousand brains theory, we explain how knowledge is stored in reference frames, how knowledge is made accessible, how knowledge is made 
actionable. And these are all new ideas that didn't no one thought of, uh, but we can get them from the neuroscience. And so I think that that level of detail, the level of detail I talk about in the book, are absolutely essential. In the second section of the book, I make that point. Um, so I, I guess we'll have to see how time plays out, right? But Jeff, um, you, you keep just, using this word intelligence, intelligence, intelligence. What is intelligence? It is. It's not what the brain necessarily does. Just like as it doesn't have to be implemented in neurons, uh, we know it can. No, but if we know it. it but, but it's okay, a cognitive but, term. The fact but that the fact yeah. that you're like, well, okay, look, all this hogwash. You've got Marvin Minsky didn't know Jack. You've got oh, you've got you know like all these uh, you know things mm. like well. I, I can see how you would, uh, you know, sort of be dismissive of a lot of that because we don't have AI. So you can say, well, approaches that have been tried uh, are clearly not the right ones. Uh, but I mean, the fact that you don't think constraining a theory of intelligence in terms of what we actually know about cognition and psychology and that sort of stuff of course, might take, of take precedent over it, yeah. what's happening in uh, you have to do particular both, neural Cody. substrates. What? You have to do both. One of the, one of the, I make this point, you know, one of the big problems in AI, uh, and which was identified many years ago, was this thing called the, uh, the, the knowledge representation problem. Like, how do you represent knowledge in a, in a system that it makes it actionable and usable? And no one could figure this out. No one could figure it out. You know, people tried different types of software things. They made up all different types of theories about it, but none of them worked. And now we know the answer to it. We understand how these reference frames create the structure for knowledge. And I described that in detail in the book. Um, now, it, it could have been that AI scientists could have figured that out without studying brains. It could have been, um, but they didn't. And my knowledge about brains is that these ideas are so, they're, they're understandable, but they're also sort of not necessarily obvious. And it could have been that they could have figured it out, but they hadn't. Um, and so my argument is, well, all right, now we know it came from the neuroscience um, and now we know it. Whether you could argue whether you needed it or not, it turns out so far we needed to know the neuroscience. We just wasn't able to figure it out in another way. So, you know, there's no preordained answer to these questions, whether you need to study the brain or not. People disagreed with me. Uh, I always felt from the very beginning that you have to understand the brain if you're going to build, understand intelligence, understand intelligent machines. You don't agree? That's fine. But... I think if you read the book and you go through it, there are principles okay, I, in there. I want to go on record and saying I did read the fucking okay. book, and I and I understand why you would insinuate otherwise. I've certainly passed off lots of books in my life to pretend uh, yeah. to pretend to read the, um, but I did actually sit down uh, uh, okay, and, okay. And, and read well, it. Uh, I guess uh, I didn't convince you, but um, I, well, I mean, uh, look, you you would. I remain convinced of the uh, of a lot of the things that you convinced me of, um, you know, a, a decade ago um, when I read on intelligence or, or whatever. Just like you, you know, remain convinced of a lot of the things that you picked up uh, initially from Mount Castle and also talked about in your initial graduate school thing. Um, yeah. I personally uh, have chosen like a different route of endeavor, and I. I totally, you disagree with me. I totally disagree with you. I think you're missing, uh, I think AI is missing crucial things. I think you're missing crucial things. Um, but I think you've got uh, a really cool uh, uh, theory of the brain. I think um, uh, you, you're, a, you're a, 
I think it's a little premature to say that the way knowledge is represented in uh, AGI in the future is through uh, reference frames. I get that you derived theoretically that this is got to be the way that, you know, when we move through the world, uh, you know, uh, all, all that stuff happens. I think to say that that is solved knowledge representation is slightly premature, but that's just my uh, opinion. Yeah. On all that. right. So we'll see. As I again, that's why I told the Intel story. Yeah. <laughs> Right. That's why I told the Intel story, because I knew there were people who would say that exactly what you said. And um, and I think the answer is what's have to play out. And I will. Uh, I'm very, very I guess confident. I, you know, so maybe maybe my point is that I don't uh, like I don't think that you're necessarily wrong about reference frames. I'm just wondering how much of it you feel is an implementation problem. Like, OK, so we know let's say we know what reference frames are. Let's say we know approximately how they work in order to um, how big is this step of like, OK, now that we know essentially what we're trying to do here, um, we want the uh, AI engineers and you know people who that's sort of more their thing to come up with a workable way of, OK, at least we're starting to do this in the way that uh, we would expect to, to see how much of how much of that do you think is like, uh, yeah, I don't know, I guess, what do you make of, of, of what do you? Well, certainly I. In the book, I'm very careful in my language, Cody. And um, I don't say you have to implement these things the way the brain implements them. And I'm very careful not saying that. You don't have to implement neurons. You don't have to do it the exact same way the neurons do it. But the concept of reference frames is essential. And I'll state that I'm, I'm very, very confident in that. And so how you implement it, that's to be determined. Um, what's the best way of doing it? What's the best way of doing it in software? What's the best way of doing it in, in silicon or something like that? This is all to be determined. But the concept is, is, is right, and I'll stick to that. Um, so that's a, those are the kind of issues we'll have to go through going forward. Um, but you know, I'll stick with, you may disagree, but I'll stick with it. The, 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 the idea of reference frames explains everything related to not only the knowledge, but how we move in the world, how we plan, how we are able to um, uh, creatively solve problems. It explains all those issues. And um, I don't think it's, it, there's no other way of doing that. There's ways of implementing it that are differently, but no other ways of doing it. So we may disagree, and uh, well, and the only way we'll find out the answer is we'll have to see how time plays out. Yeah, I look um, forward to that. Uh, I, I yeah. do want to say that I I am a big fan of your incorporation of um you know sort of what you might think of as as sort of like the embodiment of intelligence. Um, yeah. I think that's a, that's such a crucial and you do, you do, you say a ton about that. And I think you're dead on with that, which I think, uh, was not always obvious, uh, in, in, in AI neuroscience. And even in my, my recollection of it, I, you know, I, I didn't go back and reread on intelligence, but I, like my recollection of it is that it wasn't, didn't play as much of a thing that that seems to me like a, a really important part mm. of theory. And I, I do. Yeah, I don't know if it was in on intelligence. I don't, I don't, it didn't, it didn't stick out to me if it, if it did, it didn't stick with me, but yeah. that seems like, by the that, way, that's, by the way that's something, again, there's an, there's an issue about neuroscience that, that it's very surprising. Most people like, for example, think about vision. They don't think about it as a necessarily as a motor system problem. Um, uh, you know, even though our eyes are moving all the time, most people think, "Oh, I move, I take an image, and move, I take an image." But neuroscience tells us the opposite. Every cortical column, even the ones in the primary visual system, have neurons that are, are involved in movement. So you, you can't even you can't even process the most lowest level features of the visual input without moving your eyes, and it's there in the neuroscience. You can just there are the cells that do this stuff. So there's there's an example where we learn from the neuroscience that every 
since everything we do is wrapped up in movement, um, whether it's physical movement or sort of virtual movement, it's still movement. Um, I know it's just an interesting observation. That's something that, you know, like there's a, that was a surprising thing when I started, I didn't know that. Um, but now it's, it's totally incorporated into the theory. So um, that's another reason we say, okay, well, at least from a brain's point of view and the way brains work, uh, you cannot separate out embodiment. It's, it's part and parcel of the whole system. It's not like a separate part of the system. It's, everything is moving. Everything is generating behaviors. Yeah. Um, and it's part of how the whole thing works. Yeah. So I'm just saying more about what you just said. No, and uh, I think I think it's a it's a it's a crucial point, and it's it's definitely a a, a point that I um, very much very much am on board with. Yeah. All right. Well, that's been fun, Cody. Thank I you for taking the time the to do here. this, Jeff. It was it was a huge uh, pleasure, and I'm super excited. Um, you know, uh, to see these problems solved, and you know, have a, uh, 20 years. I don't know what whatever we give it give it. You know, a couple decades. I'm excited to see how uh, all this plays out, and you know, to be proved wrong. That's really going to be the most fun, you know, for me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think. I think the way I look at it, Cody, is is it's not about proving anyone wrong. It's finding out what the right answer is, mm. and uh, that's the exciting part to me. Not proving someone wrong. It's it's finding the answer. Yeah. And if, if I'm wrong about something, well, I'll still be excited about it because that means I've learned something. Yeah. Um, and um, so that's the way I look at it. All right, Jeff. Thank you for the book. Thank you All for right, your good. work. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Big fan. All right. It's good uh, talking to you, Cody. All right. Uh, bye now. Yep. Bye. That's it for this week on Cognitive Revolution. As always, thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com or a direct message on Twitter at Cody Commerce. You can also get updates on all the latest episodes by following at CogRevPod. If you want to support the show, you can do so by purchasing a book at bookshop.org slash shop slash revolution, or if you're in the UK, uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash revolution. If you enjoy the show, I'd also appreciate it if you would consider subscribing through whichever platform you may be listening on or leaving a review on iTunes. These numbers are one of the main drivers of bringing in new listeners to the show. If you want to connect with me more generally, you can do so on Instagram at Cody Commerce. And if you want to keep up with my writing, the best way to do so is to subscribe to my Substack at codycommerce.substack.com. Oh, and by the way, you can also listen to my travel podcast, Notes from the Field, through whichever platform you may currently be listening on. Finally, you can find more about me and my work at codycommerce.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Mm-hmm.